Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Donald Trump says to Europe, I think you're losing your culture. And it was in the UK that POTUS Trump made his European immigration statements. You'll hear Gerard Batten, leader of UKIP, and member of the European Parliament for London. Trump meets Putin in Helsinki tomorrow. The two alphas. What to expect? And Generation Screwed, mobilizing young taxpayers to save their economic future. All coming up on this podcast. With us now is Dimitrios Papadimitrio. He's co-founder and former president of the Global Migration Policy Institute. And uh, Mr. Papadimitrio, thank you for taking the time. Good to talk to you. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, First of all, your thoughts and your reaction to what President Trump has said about the threats to Europe and the European culture I'm not using his words, well, paraphrasing his words, threats to Europe and European culture based on the migratory patterns and the immigration and the asylum seeking that's taking place in Europe? Well, certainly he's expressing a sentiment that um, has been raised by an awful lot of people in the last 20 or 30 years. It's um, a concern that things are changing and changing too fast. And uh, certainly you have political parties that have, um, in a sense, exploited that message into either direct political power or shaping the policies of um, the parties that are ruling uh, a particular society. Um, he always knows how to, to go for the, <laughs> for the throat, as it were, the jugular. And he did exactly what Mr. Trump does every single time and difficult and complex issues. So how much of an impact will what Mr. Trump said have on particularly the part of Europe or the people in Europe or the leaders in Europe who feel strongly that the migration has been far too um, large in numbers and far too influential in the way policy is shaped in European nations? Well, virtually no impact. Uh, In other words, anybody who really follows the president uh, expects him to say these things, but the effect of what he says is really temporary. So some of them for the next week or so may say that even Mr. Trump pointed the weakness or uh, the, the, you know, the foolishness of this particular set of policies, but they certainly have all sorts of other things that they can use in defense of their particular position and in trying to get more voters to vote their way. Is the attitude toward migrants to Europe significantly changing? Is it significantly different to what it might have been three years ago or four years ago? And do you see that if that is in fact happening, and I've talked to people who tell me that 
there is a hardening of attitude, and we see it in news stories from Italy most recently and also Austria. Now Germany and the Bavarian police have their own border uh, unit, uh, from what we've been told. Uh, is the attitude hardening, and will there be an effort made beyond what we're already seeing in Denmark and, and the Netherlands, for example, an effort made to remove people who have most recently, say over the last three years, migrated to Europe and made those countries their homes? To answer the first part of the question, certainly attitudes are hardening. You know, there is no comparison almost between what is happening in most of Europe today compared to what was going on in the first uh, half or three quarters of 2015. Um, in places like um, Denmark, since we started to talk about Denmark in your introduction, mm -hmm. Denmark has always been sort of a hard-nosed um, society and government when it comes to, to immigration and uh, has always had its eye on, on Muslim uh, immigration. So, uh, yes, there has been a dramatic change over time everywhere. And I want to emphasize everywhere because we focus all too often on the easy places like Denmark and Austria and, uh, and uh, Hungary and other places. But if you look at France, that always tries to look extremely innocent when it comes to these issues, it has also introduced dramatic new legislation that reduces the scope and the opportunity for newcomers who, who want to seek uh, you know, asylum protection to do so. So everybody is doing it. And I suspect even the ones that uh, are not really you know, in, in our in field of vision at this time, uh, you will see that if you look under the surface, you will see that there has been hardening there. For instance, everybody now is trying to think that things somehow will change when it comes to Spain, because it took that particular vote of people about uh, two or three weeks ago. But the fact is, you know, that Spain has a very, uh, you know, a, a very strong and complicated way of defense against unwanted migration that involves an awful lot of countries from which or through which people might come to Spain, whether it is trying to come directly to Spain through Morocco or what have you, or go to places that are Spanish and now they're in the middle of the ocean. So everybody is trying to defend themselves, as it were, defend here is in quotes, against unauthorized and unwanted chaotic migration. The only place that you're not going to find any particular animus against unwanted migration is Portugal. And part of the explanation is, of course, Portuguese politics and the background of Portuguese society, but also because people don't want to go to Portugal, because people want to go to a few places in Europe, and Portugal is simply too much out of the way in order for somebody to get to Sweden or Germany or what have you. Is, uh, is this going to have an impact on the millions of people who arguably want to get out of the countries they're living in for whatever reason they want to leave, whether it's uh, lack of economic opportunity, whether it's violence, whether it's uh, any number of issues, then they look at Europe and they see previous migration, and by that I mean in the last, say, five to ten years, 
Uh, they look at Europe as a, as a prime destination to accomplish what they were com- want to accomplish and get, that is get away from where they are. Is this is what's happening in Europe now to try to either slow it down or bring it to a halt in some of the countries, is that going to have an impact in these migrant or asylum-seeking uh, nations' populations? Well, certainly this is one of the objectives of these policies. I understand. And the reason that the Austrians who are now holding the the presidency of the European Union being so hard on these issues because they want to send a message to would-be migrants. By migrants, I mean a combination of people who are unauthorized or who are trying to become convention refugees to get the, the gold standard of protection or some sort of an interim standard of protection. So they want, the Europeans want the message to get, to get through to them to say, don't try it. The only way that you can get into Europe is if you have your claim adjudicated somewhere else. And this is the intention of the Austrian presidency. Uh, Europe has been talking about sort of the next step in this, which is, you know, sort of examining all claims outside of European territory before people, in other words, gain rights by virtue of the fact that they have touched down on European territory. That is the objective of the people who are trying to have a consistent, hard statement and hard policy on these issues. Will the people get that message and how long it will take? That's a different story. We will have to see. Mr. Papadimitri, one of the things that I've, one of the uh, positions we've heard stated repeatedly when we've talked to guests who have a perspective on what's going on with the migration in Europe is that the resentment factor that exists within populations of some of the nations we've talked about, perhaps particularly uh, Germany was brought up, was that there were significant criminal activities took place, taking place that the authorities turned a blind eye to because they didn't want to be um, described as racist, so they didn't do anything about it, that, uh, that newcomers did nothing or tried very little to assimilate into the existing population and way of life and that there were areas of uh, cities where, we've heard this before, were, were no-go areas, which almost takes, I guess it does take us to the Denmark question of what they define as ghettos. Is that, uh, is that all valid as, from your perspective? Well, uh, this is a very, a very complicated issue in that when you look at statistics about criminality, um, almost uniformly, uh, you find that the foreign-born are less criminally inclined in terms of how you measure criminality than uh, the, the home populations. And that holds true just about everywhere. At the same time, however, what you said that political correctness and concerns about not being identified as anti-immigrant has always led in the last several years, although things have changed in the last year or so, into some political correctness in terms of how you identify criminality. And certainly in the end of 2015 and 2016, particularly at the events in Cologne, um, in the summer, I'm sorry, Christmas or New Year's holidays uh, in 2015, uh, there, were, there was an awful lot of uh, confusion about um, some um, misbehavior, significant, 
and misbehavior, primarily from people who looked and sounded from North African, you know, Muslim. And then it slowly came out that similar things had been happening in other parts of Europe, in Sweden in particular, when it came to large crowds and, uh, you know, big events, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, criminality is lower among the foreign-born, but there's also petty criminality that is quite significant, particularly in certain parts of the country. And we have seen that both in Sweden, uh, where there are indeed um, certain areas, small areas, that police is reported not want to go not wanted to go in because you know of fear for a melee happening etc cetera, etc cetera. and you hear reports like that about certain parts of germany you know i if you if you're concerned about criminality in general and you think that the foreign born should behave sort of perfectly you would say that there is criminality and we don't, we don't report it. And all criminality is unacceptable. We have if about... Say, I'm sorry, go ahead. You say that, you know, in every group of people, that some of them are going to misbehave, particularly in terms of small kinds of criminal acts, then, you know, you will find you'll have a different uh, decision on this. We have about 30 seconds. Do you see yeah. this whole issue that we've been talking about resolving itself without any without any violence, without any um, urban violence taking place? And I mean, when I say that, I mean in, in really significant proportion. Yeah, I don't, I don't anticipate that there will be urban violence of the kind that you're talking about or the kind that we have seen in the United States. I think there are going to be isolated incidents, some real bad incidents that are going to be played, you know, in the media as big, big issues. You know, there was a 13-year-old girl that was killed uh, in the past month or two in Germany that has been played up in the media. But in reality is that there will always be some crime, and people who want to exploit that will try to use that criminal act to exploit it. And those people who say these things happen... All right. I have to to stop you there because... As we have to say, it's the clock. Mr. Papadimitriou, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate talking to you today. Thank you, Roy. I enjoyed it. Bye. Hit up Apple Podcasts or Google Play and subscribe to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Roy you want, when you want it. It was in the UK that uh, Mr. Trump made his European immigration statements arguing the leave the EU Brexit vote in 2016 was in response to huge migration population increases in European Union nations, and it is UKIP, the UK Independence Party, then under Nigel Farage, which led the charge in Britain for Brexit. Does UKIP today agree with Donald Trump, and how's the party reacting to Prime Minister Theresa May's soft Brexit plan? Gerard Batten joins us. He is the leader of UKIP now. He's also a member of the European Parliament for London. Gerard, good to speak with you again. Thank you for taking the time. Hello, Roy. Pleasure. So what is your response? What is UK, UKIP's response to Donald Trump's visit to the UK and his statements concerning migrants' impact on Europe? Uh, well, I mean, we agree with him on that. I mean, one of the reasons that the referendum, I think, result was won is because people realized they were no longer in control of their own country or their politicians and their governments weren't in control. 
because primarily of the immigration issue. Um, that was the one that brought it home to everybody. And, and immigration has been ramping up in terms of numbers since about 2004 in the UK as a direct result of countries from Eastern Europe joining and having open borders. So whereas a lot of what the European Union does affects people's lives, but they're not really aware of it because it's legislation that, and they don't particularly know where it comes from, uh, certainly the immigration uh, issue brought it home to ordinary people that, the, that the, our own government is not in control of our immigration policy. And we have actually been absolutely been deluged with immigration in the last 14 years. Our population has increased enormously. It's put up the price of housing. You know, it's very difficult now to buy a place or to, to find affordable rents uh, because of sheer demand. So that's what brought it home to people. I think Donald Trump, Trump was absolutely right. He's also right about something else, which is the way that that immigration from outside of Europe is actually changing the nature of European societies and their culture. Now, there are European nations that uh, that are taking steps to change what's been going on. And uh, we were speaking to our last guest about what's going on in Denmark, where they're saying that they're no longer going to allow what they officially describe as ghettos, and that's population centers, with more than 1,000 people, and more than 40% are from non-Western nations, I think uh, unemployment is at uh, uh, more than 40%, and at least 2.7% of residents have had uh, criminal convictions. Then there's Austria, which doesn't want to have any more or many more uh, migrants. Germany's made changes. Reluctantly, Angela Merkel's allowing camps on the border to, uh, to hold undocumented entrance into uh, Germany. Italy has not allowed a, a migrant ship to uh, land about a month ago. And uh, we, of course, know about Poland and, uh, and, and Hungary. So is this um, not only attitude, but also legislative efforts, is it spreading across Europe, do you think, from country to country to country? Well, interesting question, because I think across certain Eastern European countries where, they had, where they've had fairly kind of uh, cohesive populations, um, then they're starting to rebel because Poland and Hungary don't actually want to take immigrants from Africa, etc., and uh, North Africa are coming across the Mediterranean. However, an enormous problem has already been created in countries like Germany and Sweden um, and uh, France with this mass importation of people. It's going to be very difficult to solve that problem because even if you sold, even if you stopped immigration now from those places, then you still have a massive problem of trying to immigrate uh, sorry, to integrate the people that you already have who very often don't want to integrate because they actually like the culture that they brought with them rather than adopt somebody else's. And on the legislative front, I can tell you that the EU is not planning to lessen this immigration. On the contrary, um, I'm going to Brussels tomorrow, and one of the issues that I'm going to be looking at is a planned, um, what's called the Marrakesh Declaration, which is a plan to actually legalise illegal immigration. Um, and this is this is something that we're going through the Parliament over the coming months, um, whereby they actually want to lessen the controls, not increase them. In the European Parliament, you will constantly hear calls, both from the commissioners who represent the European Commission and from Parliament members themselves, that we need to legalise the routes to migration. And what that means is making illegal immigration legal. And they are still planning to do that, despite what the summer countries uh, are saying and rebelling against this policy, the EU still intends to go full tilt with importing literally millions of people from outside Europe into Europe.
So this so is the you n- haven't seen anything yet. There's going to be more. Wow. There's going to be more fireworks yet, I think. So this is the the no borders crowd. That's right. Yeah, I mean they believe. First of all, they believe that Europe is one big country. Therefore, there shouldn't be any border controls across Europe. Uh, and they also think that it is a good idea. I don't know why. Uh, no one can really explain it to me. Why they think it's a good idea to import millions of people from outside of Europe. Uh, and it's, these are not skilled workers who are coming in to fill vacancies in the economy. These are just migrants who turn up who are unskilled and very often, as you've suggested, end up with criminal records and living ghettos. Um, and it's, it's not an immigration policy. Uh, it, it, it's a free-for-all. It's just open borders, let people come if they want. Now, it's, it's quite odd because people who live in Western countries who are sometimes supportive of this don't seem to equate it with, a, with the... If they wanted to go and live in Canada, for example, or the USA or New Zealand or Switzerland, uh, sorry, uh, Australia, they would have to have qualifications, they'd have to have money, they'd have to be able to support themselves, and they would accept that as being something that, yeah, that's the fact of life, but they can't seem to see that it should be a fact of life when migrants come to our countries. And we have a very strange mindset amongst a certain section of the population. These are the kind of people who were out demonstrating against Donald Trump uh, in London uh, earlier this week. Well, uh, Gerard, if you if you come to Canada and uh, you just enter the country from which is happening uh, generally from New York State into Quebec at a non-official border crossing, people are coming in by the thousands, and mm. uh, they 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 have no reason to be here. They're claiming uh, asylum, but they're already in a country which has provided asylum or provides asylum, that's the United States. And our prime minister uh, seems to be devoid of ideas. He issued a tweet in 2015 where essentially he welcomed the world to Canada. Now he has to live with it. And uh, we just a couple of days ago had the, the, the minister for the province of Ontario, who has the immigration portfolio, challenge the federal government through you have to step up to the plate and you have to help us pay for all the costs, for all the people who are coming into the country or at least into the province and require housing and support. And uh, the, uh, the, uh, the immigration minister called that request un-Canadian. So it's not going all that smoothly here. Tomorrow, well, they have a, tomorrow they have essentially an emergency meeting on the immigration issue in Ottawa. I mean, you see, yeah, well, so this is the old thing, isn't it? Because those are people who turned up claiming to be refugees, I, I presume. But if, if, a, if a person... Uh, like myself, with paid employment, coming up to retirement, going to have a pension. If I said, well, I, I really fancy coming to live in Canada, I'm sure I'd quite find it quite difficult to actually get entry and permission to live there, wouldn't I? I'm sure I would, because that's the way it works in the UK. Yeah, if, well. you asked, if, you, if you went along the official route and you uh, requested entry into Canada, of course, you'd run into trouble. If yeah. you just packed a suitcase and, and arrived at the border and walked over, they'd, yeah. they'd, they'd, they'd start a process of investigating if you didn't have a criminal record, you could be here for years. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we have a thing in, in the UK where you've got, for example, people from India who are qualified doctors or whatever who want to come in. Mm-hmm. We won't allow them in. Yeah. But we have, beg- we have beggars and criminals and people sleeping rough on the streets of our, of our cities who are allowed to come in purely and simply because they're European Union citizens and you can't stop them. Um, uh, and it's an, it's not, it's not a, an immigration policy. You can't give it, you can't give it the uh, the the uh, honour of calling it that because it's a, it's a non-immigration policy. It's just open your doors to Europe. But 
anybody else, you know, you're going to keep them out, even if they're people you might actually like to have in the country. Well, we, you know, we and have that going on now. We have, uh, we have yeah. translators, Afghan translators, who were on the front lines of the war, the conflict in yeah. Afghanistan, with our Canadian forces, who took fire when our Canadian forces took fire. And the Canadian forces there will tell you, members of the forces will tell you they were really a tremendous assistance to them, not just in translating, but just making them aware of the customs of the country. Now, these individuals are in Afghanistan. Our troops are gone. They are now, the translators are now being hunted by al-Qaeda and the Taliban, and our government's doing nothing to bring them into Canada. We're doing, we're trying it on this program, and other media are trying as well to get these translators into Canada, but our federal government shows no interest at all. However, if you're a former ISIS member, if you're a former ISIS killer, then uh, the Trudeau government will allow you back home into Canada with absolutely no restrictions. In fact, the prime minister said such individuals might be a great bonus to this country. <laughs> uh, well, we've had a very similar experience where we've had people, we've had hundreds of people who went off to fight for ISIS in Iraq and uh, Syria, uh, who now we've let back in. Uh, and, and it's even been suggested, you know, that we should give them uh, public housing and benefits in order to help integrate them back into society, rather than actually saying, you know, thanks very much, we don't want you, we won't allow you back in, you can stay there, which would be the sensible thing to do. Um, uh, and of course, these people then may be put on a watch list uh, from the security services, but they're now overwhelmed with numbers. Uh, I think it was uh, the, the recent head of uh, MI5 who's retired said, I think we have now about 23,000 people who are on the danger list that we need to be watching. Uh, there simply isn't the resources to do no. that. possible. No, we've run into situations here where 100 people are too many for our security services to watch. 100 people mm. were for 24-7 surveillance. The Roy Green Show podcast, ready and waiting for you anywhere, anytime. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Google Play today. Gerard Batten is with me. He's the leader of UKIP, the UK Independence Party, and they were largely responsible, as you know, for the Brexit movement in uh, in Britain, which turned out to be a plebiscite where the majority of Britain said, we don't want to be part of the European Union any longer. We want out. So, Gerard, what's, what's the situation now? What, the, the original intent was to cut all ties, as I understand it, with the European Union. Now there's been all of there's been a, quite a bit of massaging of the original intent, and there's something called the soft Brexit. Is that is that the is that the uh, the, the the brainchild of uh, Theresa May, and and what's going on with Brexit now? Well, that's a, that's a very euphemistic way of putting it, Roy. Uh, very diplomatic of you. Um, <laughs> what we voted voted for was to leave the European Union. The term soft Brexit and hard Brexit was invented by the Remain side after we won, the Leave side won, uh, because hard Brexit implies, oh, it's all going to be terrible, you know, it's going to be difficult. Soft Brexit, oh, it's not nice and easy. And what it means is it's code for not really leaving the European Union at all. And this is what I've been warning about um, long before Mrs May became Prime Minister, that this is what the Remain side would try to achieve. And she, of course, was a Remainer a Remain campaigner in the referendum, and then she got the job of actually making it happen, which didn't didn't bode well anyway. Uh, but what she's done, actually, is, is very little over the last two years in terms of actually leaving the European Union. The government only recently published its um, European, uh, uh, its Leaving Act, its Withdrawal Act, which says how it would be accomplished legally. But then what kind of deal, in inverted commas, are we going to get with the EU? 
And what she's done, she sprung on her own cabinet last weekend, a white paper, which is a proposal that she's going to put to the European Union, which is now seen by anybody that wants to leave as a complete betrayal because we are leaving in name but not in reality. And such a betrayal is it that even her own minister, David Davis, who was in charge of the negotiations, wasn't aware of this. He's resigned. He's calling it a betrayal. A 100-page document was produced at this meeting, which he apparently wasn't aware of, and he's the minister. And you don't write things like that in five minutes. There must have been civil servants working on this for a long time. It's been called a betrayal by him. Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's another senior uh, Tory uh, MP, uh, has actually castigated this and called it a betrayal. And I think Mrs May now is on the way to actually uh, being challenged with a leadership election. Uh, because everybody sees this as a betrayal. Everybody knows what it means. It means that we are going to basically surrender to the EU. The interesting thing, Roy, is that what she's planning, what she proposes, first of all, they haven't accepted it yet anyway, because they could reject it. But if they did, it would put us on the same status, a similar status, to a country that is applying to join the European Union, whereby they accept their rules and regulations, they get themselves in alignment, so eventually they can join. And my view is that what she's planning is this kind of status of, a, of an applicant country so that in another year, two, three years, the government of the day can actually say, oh, well, we made a mistake and now we're coming back in. We're going to rejoin. Um, and I think what Mrs May very much hopes is her political opposition to the European Union, which is us, the UK Independence Party, will have actually disappeared off the scene because we lose our uh, members of the European Parliament next March when all of the UK members of the European Parliament will, will be gone. And, of course, we were the, we, we've achieved the highest vote in the last elections in 2014 because mm -hmm. it's a proportional representation system. Right. Well, what's also happened in the last uh, few months is that UKIP's fortunes have been reviving. Since I took over as yeah. leadership, yeah. we were about to disappear off the political scene. We were about to go bankrupt, basically. Okay, Gerard, I'm, we're, I'm go, we're, we're going to have to... I hate to do this to you. I did okay. it to my last guest uh, because we just ran out of time. But we'll have to pick up this okay. conversation uh, going forward. But thank you so much for joining us today and giving us a great insight. You're welcome. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. Beautiful. Thanks so much. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Visit Apple Podcasts or Google Play now and sign up for the Roy Green Show podcast 100% free. 100% Roy. Have you heard of Generation Screwed? So I'd, I'd heard about Generation Screwed, but I didn't really know what they were about. I mean, I figured out that it was probably younger people who were unhappy with something that had to do with uh, the way this country is being run. And uh, it was ever thus. All of our generations, whichever one you're from, whether you're a boomer or uh, I believe there have been there's boomers. They're an X generation. No, they're, they're, they're the next ones, right? X? They don't know. Um, Zed. The Zed generation. That's the ones we were talking about, right? Yeah. A few weeks ago. So what else is there? The millennials. You guys are millennials. Uh, Lisa and Will in the studio are millennials. They were guests, and they did a terrific job explaining what the millennials are concerned about. But now they're kind of yesterday's news because there's the, sorry, they're, they're, there's the sad generation. Well, I'm a boomer. You're kidding me? I'm last week's news on that scale. So then there's generation screwed. And uh, I found out some really interesting stuff, and I'm not going to even try to explain it because Ben Lawton's going to do a much better job at that than I will. 
And uh, Ben is the British Columbia Regional Con- Coordinator for Generation Screwed, which is an offshoot of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. How are you, Ben? Very well, Roy. Thank you for having me on your well, show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, we did have a good conversation on the phone, and uh, sometimes I find that I very rarely talk to people before we do an interview because uh, it's sometimes difficult to replicate what you talked about on the phone because the best stuff is usually exchanged the first time you talk. But I'm sure we'll get beyond that. So would you, would you explain to us, please, who makes up Generation Screwed? Generation Screwed is an organization comprised of students who are concerned about their future. They're comprised of a group of students across this country. We have, um, we have clubs from Victoria to St. John's. We're the largest nonpartisan, freedom-oriented ca- campus advocacy group in Canada. And it's comprised of students who are skeptical about uh, the dominant narrative within universities, the, the idea that we are... We are fixated and, and only only able to progress through the sort of uh, era of super spending by government. Um, we advocate against uh, the growth of public debt, and we advocate for the balancing of, of budgets. Our, our message is, is quite simple. Uh, politicians constantly borrow our money. They constantly tell us that they know what's best with our resources. And yet they never, ever pay the money back. They always kick the cost down to future generations. So Generation Screw really does represent the generation that is stuck with the bill. So it's not a particular, it's not a specific age range. It's not those between, say, 18 and 24 or those between 20 and 30. Generation Screwed is young people, and we could start as, as soon as you're cognizant of the fact that you're on the hook for a whole lot of money before you ever earn a dollar. Um, yeah. As long as you recognize that fact, you can be a member of Generation Screwed. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, there, there's no doubt that debt, government debt, is uh, it's an intergenerational conflict. It is a conflict between the present and the past. And what our modern politicians don't understand is that throwing money at a problem doesn't mean that they're doing a good job of dealing with that problem. Um, our generation, including including the generation before mine, um, is facing massive fiscal shortfalls. We have an aging population. Uh, we have many healthcare systems that are facing fiscal cliffs. And got, so far, government's only solution has been to continuously and continuously borrow. Uh, the current government now, by the end of their tenure of four, of four years, will have added 100, over $100 billion of debt to the federal debt load, taking us from around $600 billion to $700 billion of debt in one term. That's roughly $17,000 per citizen. But you know that bullet, budgets, rather, balance themselves. <laughs> of course, of, of course. And, and that, that, is, that, is the, that is the line. And, and if you look deeper into that, that phrase, which obviously was said um, offhand without much thought put into it, it shows the arrogance of government. Uh, governments all over Canada, of all political stripes, will always tell you that they know how to spend your money and that when they spend their money, that when they spend your money, that good things can always uh, come of them. Well, it turns out 60% of 
most uh, outcomes of corporate welfare, which we spend $3 billion a year in handouts to industry, have questionable outcomes. Um, and for all of the spending that occurs at the federal level, I ask young people every day, how much of that do they see? How much of these you know, grants to uh, universities, to, um, to different uh, funding pools through government agencies, how much of that do they see? Most of my friends have part-time jobs while they're in school in bars or restaurants or construction companies or managers in small businesses. I ask them, what, what, are your wages subsidized? The, the CEOs and executives at Bombardier's are, uh, those in, in the, the failing uh, green tech companies of which there's massive turnover, they all get to walk away with golden parachutes. Where, where are the bonuses uh, in, in, our, in, our, in our so-called virtuous public education system where students are defrauded out of tens of thousands of dollars in their early years to get, plunge them into government debt that they owe to the government? Yeah, look, I have to ask. I have to ask you this question. You're providing us with good information, solid information. When you provide that information to prospective candidates to join Generation Screwed and be a voice with you, yeah. Uh, what percentage of young people would be eligible, most mostly, to join Generation Screwed? What percentage of the young population? is aware of how much debt there is, how much trouble this country is in as far as debt is concerned, how many of them are interested? How many, how many know what's going on? Because if you'd come to me when I was 19 or 20 years of age, I wouldn't have had a clue. I right. would not have had a clue. I was interested in having a good time. Yeah, I mean, Showing these back to young students and young kids, most of the people I talk to are between, between the ages of about 20 and 25 years old mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in university. They, they don't want to look at the figures. You know, it's, it's like showing them a gruesome image. They just don't want to look. But when you start talking to them and those who are interested start listening, they, they understand. They, they, they clue in. Uh, the next generation of students are not as sort of naturally liberal as just the generation previous. Um, it, it's, it's quite amazing how many young young uh, fiscal conservatives are out there who, who want to see uh, government reign back because they, they've lived through the epochs or their parents have where a, atrocious government spending and no restraint has, has not resulted in any direct benefits. In fact, the, the, the costs have been foisted onto their parents and, and they're soon realizing the costs are forced foisted onto them. So, you, so, you'll find, to find jobs. so you'll find a significant percentage of young people. By the way, by the time I was 23 or 24 and had been paying taxes for a few years, you know, on a what was a reasonably yeah. good salary for a young guy my age, uh, I became very much aware of what taxes were, and I became very much aware that this was going to be my unwanted partner for the rest of my life. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter whether if you can retire, you do whatever you want. They'll still be grabbing money out of your pocket. Of course, it's just the it's it's government is like the 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 biggest pickpocket in the world. If you have it, they'll take it. So by the time I was twenty three or twenty four, I was really starting to get it. But when I was twenty years of age, I was just having a good time. Maybe that's just the way the uh, the uh, the dominoes dropped. Um, What is worrying to me, I have to take a break here in a second, but what worries me, and I wonder what, how this plays with Generation Screwed, we have inevitable rising debt. It appears to be because our politicians can't seem to stop it. 
They can't seem to come up with plans that should be fairly simple. Their ideologies overtake common sense. Pragmatism is out the window. They have their own pet projects to generate votes, not to not to do anything. I, I'm I'm here. I'm the ultimate cynic. Uh, it's all about generating votes. It's not necessarily to improve the country or to prove the improve the realities that we live. We we generally do that ourselves by being a reasonably cooperative society. But what is their greatest concern? What is your greatest concern? Is it the people who misfire and mismanage? Is it business? Is it, um, and what is your greatest concern? Well, it, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because this gets into the, the political economics behind debt and why governments go into debt and why governments like to spend money and where, and also what the borrowing power really means for Canadian society, what it means for a government who has the ability to borrow what kind of power that vests in their hands and who the winners and losers come to be. Mm-hmm. Want to hear more Roy Green? We've got you covered with the Roy Green Show podcast. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. When, when you have a, uh, a provincial, um, essentially immigration minister, calling on the federal government to help pay for a problem they created and the federal minister becomes angry, and says it's un-Canadian to make that sort of demand. How do you respond? Oh, Roy, you're going to get me in trouble here. Um, there's, there's no doubt that the the illegal immigration puts immense uh, financial burdens onto local governments as well as local communities as well. When we talk about the costs of, of government programs, we don't just talk about the dollars and cents costs that are mostly wasted at the bureaucratic level. We also talk about the ex- externalities and the effects of those policies. They get foisted on taxpayers, families, and students too. Uh, now, it's not to say you know that every uh, you know every newcomer to Canada is a direct cost in society, but every poor, unemployable uh, refugee, if, if that is in case, you know how they are coming, is is certainly going to add a cost onto the system. We have to be prepared to you know make a balance between how much of this we can pay for. Now, but when you when you you know try to virtue signal government into abiding by a top-down government policy that is outside of their control, you know illegal immigration requires uh, you know defenses against that. Um, then there, there's no doubt that they're being kicked a bill that is improperly imposed on them. Yeah, they just they just they just hand it off. Of course. They just hand it off, and you cannot do that. And for, um, you know, Mr. Husson to suggest it's un-Canadian is just bizarre, given the fact that his boss doesn't really believe that, you know, Canada is an individual country anymore. We're the first post-nation state. It's yeah. it, it, makes my, uh, it makes my head spin and my stomach turn. My friend, I've got to, I'm going to have to let you go. Thank you for joining us. Now, tell us how people can get hooked up with uh, Generation Screwed. Well, you, if you're a student at university, please check to see if you have um, a chapter already open in your university. If you don't, you can contact your local regional coordinator and start one yourself. There's plenty of opportunities. We uh, do a lot of training, political training, and um, we're, we're growing much beyond uh, the university realm now. We get, we get, we're starting to get involved more on policy, more in the media to 
push our, our, our message of responsible government. Okay. And it's generationscrewed.ca. That's correct. Generationscrewed.ca. Ben Lawton, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Roy. All the best to you. Thanks for listening. The Roy Green Show is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you like what you heard, tell a friend and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. Thank you.